The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Tuesday, May 6th, 2020, 5 o'clock p.m. We now know how Boris Johnson got coronavirus. The Guardian is reporting that number 10 Downing Street scientific advisors warned that the government should tell people not to shake hands on the same day that Boris Johnson visited a hospital and boasted about shaking hands, quote, with everybody. Meanwhile, the Washington Post is questioning whether press aired in reporting that Kim Jong-un was dead, while the New York Post uh, is reporting that Kim Jong-un photos spark wild theories about a body double. We are not allowed to have fun anymore but in lieu of fun, we are going to have a very interesting conversation today. Uh, Kate, um, bring us up to speed on our guest who is not here yet. Where, well, Will is on his way. Um, to be fair, I think that he's, I'm about to send him a separate Zoom link just in case he doesn't have this one. Oh, there he is. Great. Hi, William. Hi. Welcome. Um, not to make my entire, all of my guests be my friends from college, but Will is one of my oldest and best friends from college. I think like, yeah, oldest friend from college. We met the, our fresh fall of my freshman year and we lived together for like three of the following, like four years of college. And then afterwards, I think for various periods of time, like, um, yeah. And so Will, I watched Will go from being pre-med to being a doctor and your residency at, the, at Bronx in the, wait, what was it? That Bronx medical. Yeah. yeah. At uh, Montefiore. Yeah. At Montefiore. And, uh, and then you went to Cal and Lord and became a specialist in anal health and, uh, HIV high risk patients and LGBTQ. Can I just like, I'm really glad that you're on the show. We kind of are we're super interested in hearing about everything that Callan Lord is doing and like what's going on in Manhattan and like New York and um, what the healthcare scene looks like. I think that you have, I was really shocked to hear, well, I think first we should start with kind of what Callan Lord is to mo- like, to kind of explain it to people. Yeah. <clears throat> cool. Yeah, so Callan Lord, it's the two names. So it's Michael Callan and Audrey Lord. So Audrey Lord, the famous poet, general badass. Michael Callen worked for ACT UP, uh, gay rights activists. And yeah, we started actually shortly after Stonewall. So we just had our 50th anniversary last summer as well. So it's the 50th Stonewall is also the 50th for Callen Lords. We've been around for a long time. And yeah, so it was kind of like in response and um, we got built up during the AIDS epidemic. I work with a lot of the original like HIV doctors in New York City. Uh, so there's a lot of history there, um, but we are a federally qualified health center. So we take care of people who don't have insurance, have crappy insurance, who are undocumented, 
Um, actually, I think 10% of our patient population is homeless. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of things. And we focus on the LGBT health in general. So all of us are HIV specialists. We also do hormone therapy for folks who are on that journey. And yeah, and then what I do specifically, um, so I'm doing anal cancer prevention. So folks who live with HIV have a much higher risk for anal cancer. Um, is pretty actually remarkable. Um, so what we do is actually the same thing. So we do pap smears. It's just the same thing as a pap for someone who has a cervix. Um, <clears throat> and if the pap smear is abnormal, we do the next step. So if you have a cervix, it would be a colposcopy. But for us, it's all in the anal canal. So it's an anoscopy, but it's the same. Um, uh, it's the same kind of disease process. It's the same kind of theory and it's the same tools. Like I actually use a coposcope. So it's, it's actually, if you know the medicine at all for um, cervical cancer prevention, it's, it's really the same thing. The only difference is that the population is much more kind of reduced because the general population anal cancer isn't a big deal. It's actually still a rare cancer. It's just specifically folks who live with HIV over so a certain age. That was one of the things that was most remarkable to me in kind of looking at the history of HIV and AIDS, um, which was the, sir, sir, the, the sarco, uh, how do you say it? The, sir, the sarcoma? How do you say Sarcosis it? Sarcoma? Yes, sarcoma. Yeah. Or just yeah. KS. SKS. Thank you. No one's ever given me the very convenient acronym before I just struggled through the definition, <laughs> trying to say words. Um, yeah, so I think that um, you and I grew up at the very end of AIDS being a thing. Um, yeah, being a, Like being a life sentence. Um, and so as a result, I grew up with like, very afraid of AIDS, but then like by the time I was like sexually active, I was no longer kind of as afraid of it. And like, it seemed much more treatable. And I think that there is, I only mention this because a lot of people have been talking recently about how kids growing up in this pandemic are mm. going to have a reaction to like COVID and to all of this stuff and whether it's going to be kind of similar in terms of just like abject fear of yeah. contracting this type, type of thing. Um, I don't know. Do you have like a sense of that? Like of what, how yeah. people are? Yeah. I feel like all the germaphobes are incredibly validated right now. <laughs> yeah, they totally are. And you know, I'm not a germaphobe. Ben, are you a germaphobe? No, no. But I'm like, I, 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 you know, there's an old Yiddish saying, whenever, when everyone's out to get you, paranoia is just good thinking. You know, exactly. when there's a when there's a pandemic, you know, yeah. germophobia is pretty reasonable. It's, so it's, we all have to like, yeah, adopt we're all it. germophobes now. Exactly. Um, so, Kate tells me you've had COVID nineteen. Is that right? Yes, I did. So I didn't sick. like that. That was not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about it. What was your? It was horrible. What, Sorry, the, the, I like. The, <laughs> The range of human experience with COVID-19 seems from to run from not noticing that you have it at all totally. to being <clears throat> killed by it. You yep. clearly noticed that you had it and you're still alive and with us. So you're somewhere in the middle. What was your experience of COVID-19? Yeah, so I mean, so in general, um, Cal and Lori got hit really hard. Um, at one point, I think more than 25 or 20% of our clinic was out with symptoms. Um, it was early on too, um, but for me, you I, I called you. It called you on. I actually looked at the date. I called you on like Mar, like March fifteenth. Yeah, and yeah, you right and you were sick, and I yeah. was like, I had just left the city, and I was like, wait, 
how sick are you? Do you need someone to like take care of you? And you were like, you had all your roommates and things seemed to be okay, but like you got better yeah. shortly after that. But yeah. Yeah. No. And for me, it started with a fever, um, which is like early on, that's kind of like what we thought was the classic presentation was fever, respiratory symptoms and kind of like go from there. Um, but yeah. So my fever was insane. It, it like went up to like, I got close to 103, but like 102.5 a lot of the time. Um, fever reducers helped a little bit. It's like, like everyone loves Tylenol now. It's like the best fever reducer. Um, but uh, yeah, and I had a headache that like wouldn't go away, which is scary in retrospect. Cause like now there's like all this thoughts, talks about encephalitis that actually has like direct CNS involvement. Um, and my fever lasted for 10 days. Like I had a straight fever, no break for almost two wow. weeks. Um, yeah, and then the lung symptoms, like I think it was unlike anything I've ever felt before. So I'm asthmatic, so I'm, I'm used to lung stuff. I get bronchitis sometimes. Um, this is totally different. It just felt like this kind of like generalized like inflammation. It was like something like was like restricting internally in your lungs. Like it didn't, and just like hurt. It was like this weird, like dull soreness when you took a really deep breath. Um, and that was freaky. Um, and that got worse kind of as the fever was getting better. Um, and then that finally like turned into this like hacking cough. You could um, barely talk when we find- when Yeah, we, no, like, I couldn't talk without point. coughing for a while. So it's, it's definitely the sickest I've been in my life. Um, and I did the full like, no, like not even a little bit smell or taste. Um, so actually uh, my roommate was sick with me and we were like doing experiments. <laughs> so we would like eat cloves of garlic and be like, yeah, I don't taste anything. <laughs> And you like don't smell like, how bad you both smell afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, I didn't see anyone for like three weeks, so no one had to like endure that with me. But I think, I think that's the other thing. I mean, I, I had a little taste of like, so I would, in the medical spectrum of things, like all that really sucks is like the sickest I've been, but that'd still be kind of defined as mild illness. Like my O2 sat never dropped below 92%. Like I never like was in real- but 92 is low. It is low. Yeah, but it's not I mean, low like... enough to go to like the hospital. So what's the, I mean, gosh. I, so I mean, how do you I, measure your O2? Do you have a, like, do you have, yeah, have, you have one? You stole one from work, you jerk. Is, <laughs> <laughs> they won't cost like 10 bucks. I mean, yeah, they're so kidding. Cheap. I'm just giving you, you, increase. <laughs> yeah, kind of so, like so, I mean, a pulse ox, what are you, that's like one or 2% above where you're admiss, admittable to a hospital, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the overall clinical picture, but O2SAT is like kind of a nice, kind of like go-to, like, are you okay or not? Um, but yeah, I mean, part like beyond that, like you can also do just like a clinical examination. It's like how hard people are struggling to breathe is like, you know, no matter what the O2SAT are, it, they look like they're about to tire out. Like that's like also um, a concern. But yeah, no, so like for me, like I was like, you know, as it's weird to be sick and a doctor, like taking care of yourself <laughs> with like no one around. Um, so I like, I had to like come up with like, you know, these are the things that are gonna happen if I have to go to the hospital. Um, I never met, like hit any of those, which I'm thankful for. So I guess for me, even though it was shitty, it was still, it would be considered like a mild infection. And, and what are, when you're, you know, from your perspective, both as a clinician and as a patient, if somebody is experiencing mild symptoms, which don't sound mm -hmm. that mild, actually, yeah, you know, a continue a continuous hundred and two fever for ten days is a. That's I mean, were you a, achy all over? Yeah, 
yeah, the muscle pain was really intense. So myalgia is just like the clinical term for it. And those like hit me pretty hard for the first few days, but those were like the first symptoms to go away. Like it was like after a week, those went away. And the fever was like fluctuating. It's like 102 was like the high point, but like during the day, like I would take fever reducers and it would go down to like a hundred. Yeah, if it was like, if it was continuously like 102.5, like I would have got insane. Like you just get like delirious at that point. Right. <laughs> so so what, yeah. what, what would have been for you the clinical or experiential symptoms that as a clinician, you would have said, mm -hmm. okay, time to go to the hospital. Yeah. I think when you can't catch your breath, I think it's like mostly for COVID, it's like uh, respiratory driven. Like those are the real kind of concerning, um, like when people start to collapse, like that's what is happening. Um, so if I like felt like I was like really, like couldn't catch my breath after a coughing fit or if I like was feeling like, you know, other than like when I was talking, like if, if like right now, like I would have been coughing if I had talked more than like a few sentences, but if you were coughing and like couldn't talk more than like a word at a time, even after you've been resting for a while, like that would be a reason to go on too. I'm so glad um, you're okay. I just like, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen your face since we've done, since everything's happened. We just talked on the phone and just like, I'm really glad to see you. Um, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about like what happened with Cal and Lord and like what, how they've transitioned into this incredible, it sounds like they're doing an incredible service. Um, and yeah. I wonder how other, many other places are kind of like meeting them in that. And I, not many, it's like, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, so yeah, so what we, so first of all, like Cal and Lord regular, like proper, like all the, we have two clinics right now in the Bronx and on 18th street. I guess 17th Street too, but it's entirely shut down um, for a little while. And now we're like seeing patients on site, but it's like very kind of like reduced. Um, I think what you're talking is about is that we contracted with Housing Works um, through DHS, so the Department of Housing something. Um, but DHS is like the giant, like they run the shelter system in New York City. Um, and we are staffing a converted hotel in Long Island City to take care of folks who are in the shelter system who either tested positive for coronavirus for whatever reason um, or have symptoms so they can't be in the regular shelter system anymore so they're getting shipped to this isolation um, hotel um, and we're doing the medical staffing there. Um, are they testing so them before shipping them or is it just symptoms? Some of they them, ship them, yeah, no, some of them is just symptoms. Some of them um, get tested and especially like, you know, the testing has been super limited until somewhat recently. Um, but now they're even like doing a testing blitz. So we might even get more people, but you know, so it's super complicated. Cause like, it's not a hospital, it's not a nursing home and it's not a shelter. Like it's like literally hotel rooms. And at one point we had 130 to 140 residents and we only had like, you know, two doctors on site. Um, and people were really sick, um, have really complicated psychosocial circumstances. You know, like that's kind of like comes with the population. What um, do you mean by psychosocial, just so people can kind of understand? So yeah, psychosocial is just like a catch-all term for like, you know, mental illness, um, severe social isolation, um, severe mental illness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so... Can those, yeah. like, if those people showed up in a hospital, Trauma. what would happen to them? So, like, a, I mean, like what if a person would, like, what if a person with, like, paranoid schizophrenia stopped taking their meds, contract, which is this, none of this seems, like, very far from, like, feasibility. Yeah. Contracted COVID on the streets of New York was found kind of dying on the streets. Like, then ambulances called to pick them up. Like, would they take them to you? 
Or would they take them no. to like Beth Israel? <laughs> no, I mean, if people are sick, they have to be in the hospital. So we get people who are like no longer meet like criteria to be in the hospital. So by definition, like we shouldn't be seeing people who are super sick. Um, but sometimes we do, you know, either by accident or like, you know, bureaucratic mistake um, or, you know, people get sick at the hotel and that's happened a few times too. Yeah, and but no, so I mean, it's normal. Like, you know, if, if people, you know, even decompensated psychosis, like if they're just like raving on the street, um, they would go to the psych ER. Um, like you can still do isolation in the hospitals. And like, you know, it's like, so people are still going there, but it's more like the in-between. So like, this is like a new crack for people to fall into. So like, if they can't go in the shelter, but they're not sick enough to be in the hospital, this Where is these... the new solution. Sorry, Ben, go ahead with your question, but then I have other ones. Yeah, so what's the patient volume now and is it rising yeah. or falling? Yeah, so it was falling for a while. Now we're like at 60, I think, is our census, which is much more reasonable. Um, yeah, and I was think, it know, its height? What? How many do you have in there at like the height? Uh, like 120, 130, I think. Yeah. And, and what's, how the, many what's people... the capacity of the hotel? It's a lot more than that. Actually, no, I think 130 was about capacity, like, especially like with turnover, like it took a while to clean the rooms and stuff. So like, I think, yeah, we were like running out of rooms at like 130. And who's paying for these rooms, DHS? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure actually, you know, like the exact specifics, like I know DHS is like where the grant is coming from, I think for Housing Works and us to staff it. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if like the hotel is donating the space. Like, I'm not sure like what the contract is. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some money changing hands, but I don't know the full details. It seems like a much smarter approach than, you know, building field hospitals in Central Park, no? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And also, I mean, one of the weird things is like all the field hospitals kind of failed um, where they weren't at capacity. Like there was even one like right next door to us at this hotel and like the amount of like bureaucracy to get someone to that hotel and for them to like send people to us, like it just didn't work. Um, so like, even when we had people who were super sick, like we, it like just worked out, we couldn't send them to this like place that was in a um, stadium nearby. So, so yeah, the, the field hospitals are definitely its own like separate kind of like weird side story that didn't really work. So explain something to me and I, I like, you know, I don't wanna, the field hospitals seem to me like a good idea, good experiment and in this situation, yeah. I wouldn't want to do anything that disfavored improvisational ideas, including dwelling on the ones that didn't work, except to understand why they didn't work. Yeah. But um, so explain to me, like, what are you doing now? You're recovered yourself, evidently. Yeah. Um, you're uh, presumably uh been diverted off of of anal cancers for the time yeah. being or or are you is that a sort of thing that's happening at the same time like what do you how are you spending your day yeah so i'm working uh, i do four 12-hour shifts at the hotel now so yeah you're right i do i've been so actually it's interesting um so the procedures are actually considered high risk because covid has been found in stool samples so the procedure that I do is thought to actually aerosolize or possibly aerosolize the virus. Um, so if I did it, it would be considered like a high risk for transmission kind of procedure. So we have to be very mindful of that in reopening. And the other thing is that the that kind of work is inherently kind of pro preventative. Um, so it's okay to delay it by a few months. Um, yeah, I've actually been crafting like the letter to go out to all the patients. Um, 
yeah, so it's not it's not an emergency and it's okay to delay that. And especially we need to balance, like right now the most pressing concern and a lot of the patients who need to come in for this procedure, the main risk for them is not like, the, you know, like the 1% risk of getting anal you know, cancer. It's the risk of getting coronavirus in the next few months. Um, and unfortunately, you know, even just traveling to the clinic takes a lot of risk. Um, like a lot of our patients aren't in the neighborhood. They're from all over the boroughs. It's actually like a big trip for a lot of people. So um, and then obviously the risk at the clinic too. Yeah, so ahead. what does a 12 hour shift for you <clears throat> consist of? I mean, oh, is man. it? Yeah, so I, I actually, how many times? Tell, tell them about like the last time you got assaulted. Will? <laughs> um, Will? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, you yeah, were no, like, she it. didn't really want to punch me. She just was punching me. And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you have yeah, a higher tolerance than most people. Um, so yeah, the work, so we do two sets of vitals a day. So, I mean, a lot of it is kind of like um, figuring out ways. So yeah, so monitoring people who are sick, right? So we've had, we had a few people who were like, you know, end stage cancer, one with melanoma, one with lung cancer, um, another one with like end stage liver disease. So like we have people who are actually like, you know, could potentially, and then on top of that, possibly have coronavirus or do have coronavirus. So there's like a lot of kind of like triaging and, and observing people who were worried could go south real fast. Um, and just kind of like waiting to see um, when we need to call EMS, if we need to call EMS. Um, and then another part of it is that these folks are getting like tossed all around the city. And so many of them have pretty complicated chronic health issues. So trying to get a handle on, um, you know, pre prescribing them meds, getting them meds for their chronic health issues, um, including a lot of folks who are on Suboxone and Methadone. And that can be really tricky kind of bureaucratically. Um, so like I have my Suboxone license so I can prescribe that. So like kind of like making sure people are stable and not withdrawing. And all that kind of stuff. So it's really kind of How like how do you figure out when people are like have coronavirus versus like are withdrawing from drugs? Yeah, I mean, there's some overlap, but I mean, there's like you know, so with coronavirus, it's like usually like fever and respiratory stuff. Um, like the muscle aches and the jitteriness can go with either. But yeah, no, it's, it's pretty. I mean, like, and I would say that majority, most people are pretty forthcoming when you when as a doctor you ask them like what's going on because they you know they don't want to withdraw. Like withdrawing sucks. Um, so they are usually pretty honest about what's going on. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that's been, that's been like, uh, I've been thankful to like be able to like take care of that a little bit. And we've even been like people who have been like using street like opiates. Um, we've transitioned a few people successfully onto Sigboxone. So it's like a little silver lining that like we get them to a program. Yeah. Um, even temporarily. Um, but you know, it's like, for me, it's like you really show up and there's always stuff to do, but like, it mostly feels like putting out fires. So Kate's alluding to, um, like there's always like some kind of crisis happening, whether that's like someone like, you know, who's tanking. I had a woman who like lied about being five months pregnant and like had all these like symptoms and like, you know, so it's like a lot of kind of like um, some of the more complicated things have been more mental health related. And one of the more intense ones was this uh, uh, woman who has a history of um, violent outbursts and paranoid schizophrenia who is starting to endorse auditory hallucinations um, and the shelter couldn't have her back because she was being violent at the shelter too. Um, and so we had to send her to the psyche emergency room um, involuntarily. And um, I don't know if ever, if either of you have ever been present for something like that, but it can be, it's like always a traumatic experience for everyone involved. So I was like, I was braced for that, but I wasn't exactly like, I think I underestimated Cause she was like actually very kind of like quiet and like um i would say very guarded that day but like i, I like wasn't expecting this like immediate violent reaction so i kind of got caught 
um, in the moment. Cause I felt like, you know, so we could call the EMS and I was like, I felt like I had to give her a heads up. Like I felt bad. Um, just kind of like surprising her with, you know, police and EMTs at the door. So I felt like I should at least try to kind of like talk her through it. Um, but it went like, I was like, you know, it's not safe for you to be here anymore. We really need to go somewhere else. And I like went from that to like punching me <laughs> like immediately. Um, yeah, and it was rough. It was, it was definitely one of the more intense experiences. Um, but it's also, yeah, like I also, it, it is also like a throwback to Monty and residency. Like um, this is not, you know, some of these are some of the more intense experiences in my life, but like they also like kind of match what I've done before. Like I had to like, run down a woman who was delirious in the ICU once at Monty. Um, and that's what I was thinking about with this one too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I feel like a lot of your story, like, I mean, you've decided to help really like really at risk populations. And yeah. so like, that's going to have some, and like, so like to a certain extent, I don't feel sorry for you. This is what you've decided you're going to do. Um, yeah. But at the same time, of course, I'm like, I love you and you're like my best friend. And so like, I don't want anything to happen to you. Um, but there is, uh, but there is like a certain amount of craziness. I'm just kind of very interested. I was, I've been speaking to a few friends in Brooklyn and New York and like, people are just saying that like the, like the landscape of the entire place has changed. And like at night, there's just no one walking around and that like, yeah. it feels a lot less safe, like still nothing huge is happening, but it feels like there's a lot less, like there's a lot more risk. Of course you heard about like Cuomo pulling all of the homeless people out of the, uh, out of the subways and forcing them into shelters, um, and all of those problems. Like you live in, wait, you live in Bushwick. Mm -hmm. And so, and you're dependent on the subway. Um, wait, do you still have a car? I can't remember. You don't. Don't have a car. I've actually been using um, this service called Revel because they gave free rides Oh yeah, all the Revel, the little workers. scooters. Yeah, which is great. Like, so it's entirely free for healthcare workers if they're traveling to like their essential job. Um, so I've been using that mostly to get around. Revel, for those that don't know, is a really great kind of like car to go service that kind of got it that no is beds. like with just little scooters. Yeah. Um, and so anyways, but so that's great. Um, but I just kind of like, I don't know what the, I don't, I know it's kind of a, it, it's a long-term projection, but like, do you have feelings about like what it's going to be like to stay in New York for the long term and what the culture of New York is going <laughs> to be like for the long term? I feel like any long-term conversation, like what's crazy is like, this is a science story and the science is like unfolding. So even predicting like what's gonna happen a month or two for now, like it's really like depending on like what we learn about immunity and the antibody tests and like, um, so I feel like that's kind of, cause like, the one thing about New York City is like, we've had an insane exposure. Like when they've like done the, like the preliminary kind of like random sampling of antibodies, like I think it was like up to like 30 to 35% um, have antibodies at like just random grocery stores. Um, and Bergamo, Italy is over 65% now. Is that exactly. true? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the, probably the most intense in the world in terms of, but you know, you're approaching, you're approaching herd immunity levels and mm -hmm. at, at, you know, at that rate of, of, yeah. of, of antibodies. Yeah. As long as you know, antibodies actually confer immunity. So right. Which, yeah, I um, wish that they we were gonna have some certainty around that. Actually, like that yeah, would be great. And, right, and I think there it will. I mean, everyone, any kind of like 
immunologists that you talk to, like it's reasonable to assume that's true, but I think the degree to which you're immune and how vulnerable or not vulnerable you are and how long, like those are all the crucial questions that are still unanswered. So, so yeah, so I don't know, so it, like in terms of like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. If you have a question, this is a great time to get in. Um, you know the drill, uh, pose your question or flag your question in the Q&A and we will rapture you in. We've got a whole lot of stuff on the table and all of it is fair game to ask about. Um, so how much of your daily practice now is directly virus, virus related? How much of it is, is indirectly virus related? How much of it is just ordinary business with the virus as background? Me specifically? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, technically everything, I'm 100% I'm virus related because I'm working at this hotel. Um, but, but even at the hotel, you know, it's like, it's more people like put in this situation because of the virus, but a lot of it is like tangential. Like the people who are really sick, you know, like we have like one or two people who are really sick with Corona specifically, but a lot of it's just more like the um, situation they've been put in because of this crisis. Um, so even though that's like, you know, they're at the, I call it the COVID hotel, um, because of that, it's like the medicine is mostly not Corona related. Right. Yeah. So we have a question from Jackson. Jackson, the floor is yours. Hey, I was just wondering uh, what you thought the long-term health outcomes would be. So like not getting the preventative checkup visits and not going to the ER when you have chest pain, because I know a bunch of ERs have lower volumes of cardiac arrests and all of those sorts of things. So what do you think about long-term, especially coming from a preventative health standpoint? Will be? Like what? Yeah, so like the long-term effects of having coronavirus, is that what you mean? Or, no, or... I, I, th I think he means like the, the we had a, a guest on uh, another friend of, of Kate who's an emergency room physician in Richmond and he oh, was saying that their, uh, their stuff is wildly down. They've, um, yeah. And I know that the rates of admissions, hospital admissions for, for cardiac arrest, which, Jack which Jackson refers to, are yeah. way down that presumably isn't oh, yeah. fewer people are having heart attacks and so what 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 are the likely consequences i think this is what he was asking what are the likely consequences of just deferring lots of normal medicine over months of uh because you're afraid to go outside or go to a hospital yeah no i, I mean like as a, i'm mainly a primary care doctor so like i feel like I already feel that happening where you can put primary care and preventative health on hold for a while, but at a certain point that does become a crisis itself. And it's like a little bit more of a lower pressure buildup. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, even at the hotel, like I had a woman who like, she just was, it was in her head that like, as soon as she shows up at the hospital, she's going to die. Like she's gonna get coronavirus and die as she goes to the hospital. Um, she's, yeah, so she just like was refusing to go even though I felt like she really had to go because of um, what was going on with her um and so I, I see that a lot you know and i think you know even in new york city we're seeing that where like more people are dying at home um and there is like this kind of like generalized fear of medicine and i yeah and i do worry about it as a primary care doctor like i think people are going to be afraid to go to the clinic for a long time um and already you know it's like a struggle to get people to participate in these preventative health um you know we have like good evidence-driven interventions to reduce heart attack and stroke 
um, and you know control these chronic health issues. Uh, but people are already kind of like hesitant to engage a lot of the time, and so I think this is like going to add another layer. So yeah, I, think I want I want like Tony good, to like, ask his, I want Tony to ask his question because Tony is lovely and wonderful, and he's a frequent frequent yep. frequent flyer here yeah. um but i but will i want to ask i want to like like just like kind of like note after you asked answer tony's question that i kind of am really interested in the amount of kind of um basically not like the amount of care but like the how you're going to be going forward like what you think of all of like the studies that are coming out in rapid succession about corona I know you and I know, well, I know me and you and I both read a lot of like scientific papers and read a lot of stuff. And I'm just like really curious when, you know, what you're thinking about the papers that you're reading and the studies that you're reading and like the problems with them. So anyways, yeah, so Tony, why, no, no, why, why don't have you to have answer you? that now and we'll go to Tony afterwards. Oh, okay. You want to answer that now, Will? To avoid breaking up sure. sequences of questions. Yeah, what are you reading that's like, interesting in this regard? Um, well, I mean, I think the most recent thing was the independent validation of antibody tests. Like these like, you know, uh, heroic scientists like around the clock did validation studies of, the, of like just 12 of like the multitude of antibody tests that came out. Um, basically, I think their main point was to prove like just like how shitty the, um, the quality of these different tests were, but it's also, it's interesting because like how quickly that got outdated because the main tests that are now being used are through these giant lab corporations. Like Abbott is one of the main ones who Quest is using um, that wasn't part of that study. So like, I think one of the more, yeah. So that another interesting thing was the COVID toes. So like these case reports that were coming out of Italy, um, but it's like microvascular damage that caused an incredibly painful little red spot on toes is mostly with younger folks. And I actually saw it in a 22 year old and it was nuts. Um, so yeah, it's just like, so I think it's like this weird, um, like the, usually, you know, this kind of all stuff happens like in the background, but now everyone's like watching science unfold in real time and how quickly like there's like the hypotheses are being tested and things get outdated really fast. Um, so I, I do think it's like really this like fast and furious and like, as I think it's both like fascinating and like terrifying at the same time. And I feel like a lot of medical people feel the same way. Yeah. Tony, the floor is yours. <laughs> Hey, thank you much. And Kate, you're way, way too kind. I'll have to send you more pictures of my dog or something like that. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I'm really interested, Will, in how you and your housemates managed your self-care at home. I'm assuming it sounded like you had a housemate who was sick. The two of you were sick. Did you have any healthy housemates or well housemates sharing your space and what you did and what people should do when pressed into caring for a loved one at home, you know, what would be the advice for how to avoid spreading just everybody coming down with COVID? We have neighbors on both sides of our house who like all four people in the house ended up with the, with yeah. the sickness. So. <clears throat> yeah, I would say, so that's a great question. Um, especially because they do believe that a lot of the drive, like the infection is being driven by kind of like close contact. So there are like these events where people spread it at a big event, but a lot of it is like, it's harder to avoid it when you're in the house with it. So, I mean, it's all, 
so I mean like uh, the kind of like basic stuff like you know try to isolate as much as possible so like I stayed in my room I didn't see anyone um like if I did ask someone to bring me something they would leave it outside my door and knock and then leave <laughs> now we go pick it up um so masks whenever you're in common spaces um you're not supposed to share a bathroom if you can and if you do it should be um, like all the kind of like mo high, the high touch surfaces should be sprayed down afterwards. Um, that's kind of like a difficult thing to um, do. Another thing that people like don't think about quite as often and it's harder when it's colder, but to ventilate as much as possible. So opening up windows to get some like cross current going because um, I can help a lot in terms of like clearing out um, infectious viral particles. Um, yeah, and then I mean, like you have to be mindful of everything that person's touching. So another thing is like linen. So if you if you you should either watch them yourself or just be wearing gloves and a mask and like full kind of like protective gear if you're gonna be washing it for someone else. Um, and did those everyone, are kind of like the main did things. Did everyone in your in your in your house end <clears throat> up getting corona? I mean, they probably did. Um, so one guy didn't have any symptoms. Yeah, I've, I have four roommates. I've one of four. <laughs> New York City, your doctor, and you still have three roommates. <laughs> but um, one of them just lost his sense of smell, but really didn't have any other symptoms. Another one, um, my the guy who lives right next door to me, is entirely asymptomatic. Um, so I'm really curious, like you know, uh, to get the antibody test for all of us to see, because like the other thing we've learned that was like totally wrong at first, because this is data we were getting out of China, is that, and we were giving this advice to everyone is that you weren't symptomatic unless you have, sorry, you weren't infectious unless you have symptoms. Um, so we thought that asymptomatic cases were incredibly rare. And obviously now we know that, that that's incredibly wrong. So there, we think that like up to like 50% of folks will have asymptomatic cases. Um, so that was like a huge shift. Um, this is, so I think it'll be interesting. Is, do you think that this is the future mm. of this? Like now that the future of this is basically like, we're going to, everyone's going to get it. And like, people are going to have to have it in various capacities. And we just really have to be able to care for the people that do get it. Or what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, that's partly like the flatten the curve. So it's about mitigation instead of like containment, right? So like, you're trying to not, oh, so you're kind of accepting that a lot of people are gonna get it. You're just trying not to overwhelm your hospital system, which is what happened in New York City. Um, so that, yeah, so there is kind of like that acceptance of there are going to be a ton of people who do get it, um, but trying to control the severity of it. Another thing that's like, you know, if you do do all of these things um, and if you wear masks and you kind of control it. Another thing I think why I got so sick is that like, I think dose also, this is like something that has been talked about, like dose also matters. Um, so if you're getting like coughed directly in your face without any protection, like you're going to get a much worse case of it than if you like happen to touch something and then touch your face. Um, so even if like a lot of people do get it, I think like doing all these measures even matter um, to on like a more personal level to control the severity of a possible illness too. So you say dose, like we say dose matters, like the <laughs> dose of the disease, like the dose yeah. of like, yeah. Yeah, like how much virus you inhale. Right. How much virus? We don't, we don't know that for sure, but that's like, that's one of the theories for why we think maybe- Is that true? Is that worse. true of like viruses generally that it matters how much virus you get? Um, it can. I mean, like, I was thinking about it, like, one way, um, I mean, you know, it like, kind for, of makes sense. 
Yeah, and like and like the chances of getting it. it's like right like I'm I'm an HIV doctor so like one of the like the risk of getting HIV on a single sex act right depends on where and how much right so if there's like fluid exchange versus no fluid exchange is like one of the questions we ask so yeah. you can kind of think of that as like a dose as well um, so yeah so like it definitely like correlates to other diseases. Oh, we have a question okay. from John Shea. Oh hey, hi John. <laughs> my that's my that's my partner. John, I'm hello. Not, He's I in the other room. I I'm not in the like, I know, I know. <laughs> revealing other people's personal information. No, no, it's yet. okay. So I figured if if you or John wanted John to has say been that, dying to ask fine, Will this but... question for a couple of weeks. So John, you <laughs> yep. can ask your question live now. I think once John, you have to unmute yourself. To in lieu of fun. Uh, hi, Will. It's nice to hey, talk John. to you. Uh, and thank you for all the work you're doing to help New York City. Um, my like uncouth opinion uh, about medical professionals is that hospitals and hospital administrators were woefully unprepared for this epidemic, that even major cities like New York might have one or two negative air pressure isolation rooms that like in case a, one case of Ebola somehow made it across a, a plane uh, and they, they didn't have like an entire isolation wing for uh, a highly infectious epidemic like this. Um, and similarly, it seems like the, the protocols at most hospitals would be that uh, a doctor would put on personal protective equipment for like each patient and expect to change them for each patient, which like obviously is completely not adequate for the kind of situation we're in now. Uh, what yeah. lessons do you think medicine has learned about managing highly infectious diseases? And if you were a hospital administrator, like what would you do to prepare for the next epidemic after this one is over? Great question. Oh man, if I was a hospital administrator. <laughs> um, Please don't become a hospital administrator. You have better things to do with your time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, was, I was thinking I'd never want to do that. Is what I was thinking. Um, but I mean, I think, well, maybe this is a little bit different because I feel like actually the hospital administrators would resist this. I think there is like one of the main lessons is a lack of coordination. Um, so one of the sad things, like, and this is also partly why the field hospitals failed is like there is this kind of like, there are all these walls and all these hospitals are incredibly siloed and there needs to be some kind of like you know we kind of scrambled to have some kind of semblance of organization for cooperation across the city and it, i would argue that it never really fully happened so yeah and that, what that means functionally is that some hospitals were incredibly crushed and overwhelmed um, even still like the queen's hospitals are still struggling where other hospitals were almost empty um there was actually and like this is all within new york city so like, it's easy to kind of like you know you can still transport people especially when the streets are empty um, but there was no kind of like triage citywide um, and i think that was like a, a real failure so like, i think having like mechanisms um for these events um, would be incredibly important in the future. Um, I think that also goes into broader kind of like, I think a lot of people are talking about the lack of public health infrastructure in general. I think, and I see that as part of that, um, that we need to have protocols and contingencies in place um, for when these things happen. Um, and I think you're touching on like, you know, we didn't have a strategic supply of things that we knew we would need even after like, you know, I've since college, I like, I, I had a, <laughs> my senior like, um like speech writing class i had a whole thing about how pandemic was inevitable <laughs> i was like trying to like scare people i remember uh, but, like, people that. have been saying this you yeah, also people used to bring fruit flies home well that's your yeah. apartment the lesbian fruit flies yeah <laughs> drosphilia 
which yeah. is a nicer name for bringing home fruit flies. And yeah. I was like, hey, I just got all this new fruit. And you're like, hey, I have these containers of entire flies that would love to devour that. Totally. But yes, anyway. Yeah. No, I think, and especially like, you know, there had to be, there should have been coordination between the private and public hospitals as well. And, and even like the kind of like military um, field hospitals, like that just didn't happen. Um, so I think that's one of the bigger failures that I saw and I would try to address if that answers your question. Well, I think Excellent. you guys had to like follow up in case. Like, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, like, I think that this has been so great. Well, this is like, I don't know, this is, I think I haven't had any, like, even like in being able to talk to you, this was like a really much more sprawling <clears throat> conversation than we've been able to have in the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was fascinating to kind of hear about like actually what's happening with these DHS hospitals and like that, like, I just think it's bizarre too. Like, I just think there's so many bizarre things happening. The fact that yeah. the DHS is just like renting out hotel rooms. Hotels. Yeah. Right. It's surreal. Yeah. It's totally surreal. The fact yeah. that like the subway is closing for Is it a nice hotel? What do you yeah, say? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, no, it's nice. I mean, it was nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, really? Is it like a complete shit show now? Uh, yeah, sometimes literally, but yeah. Yeah, I was imagining a lot of poop being thrown around. That is kind yeah. of- Yeah, I mean, I can tell you horror stories. I mean, they, they sent us people who like couldn't move and you know, we don't have anyone to like, we don't have any nurses to like move people and like help them toilet and stuff. So it got messy a few times, yeah. Ugh. Unfortunately, yeah, there's a lot of sad stories. Is there, you said something about COVID being in like fecal matter. Is that like, is that a concern? Like, I know that like, we're talking about it in terms of like washing your hands and everything else, but like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think it's a main route of transmission at all. Like fecal oral transmission is usually like, you know, that's like Norwalk virus on cruise ships and stuff. Right. Uh, norovirus rather. Um, but uh, no, I don't think it's a main vector, but like, it's just like in very specific circumstances. So like, if you like analingus, it might be a problem, <laughs> but I think people yeah. are having sex in general. <laughs> uh, but for me, and like for people who do these procedures, so like GI docs and colorectal docs, and then like, you know, my like weird little niche of like doing endoscopy, like we get the, it is just like strange, um, we have to be a little extra careful and like we're probably have to delay procedures for a while. Yeah. Well, thank you for everything that you're doing well and yeah, stay it's, safe it's, out there friend incredible public service yeah no problem and it feels crazy but yeah it's great to talk to you guys thanks for having me i love thanks you i'll talk that. to you love soon you okay bye. bye um yeah well there is um he we had we were at one point at similar trajectories i was gonna go we were both gonna go be doctors and now will is like helping people in like the midst of the coronavirus. And you're doing remote uh, property. And I'm like, yes, and I'm doing <laughs> like in lieu of fun, more fun. <laughs> um, no, he's, he's truly one of the most incredible people. Like I just, he just, he's um he's just wonder not and not in like a precious kind of like there's no paul farmer like grandiosity about him there's nothing about ambition he just like kind of just wants to help people and is going to do the hard hard work of helping people and it's it's great it's pretty amazing yeah so 
What do we have on tap for tomorrow? Tomorrow we have Nicole Wong and Alex McElvray. Indeed, because tomorrow is the big news day, right? Big news day. Yeah, it's going to be kind of, it's going to be an interesting day. I have lots of thoughts on things. All right. Well, what do you gonna, think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I am not oh, I, yeah. to, to the news before the news, um, but we are going to uh, have a conversation about it. And then to, on Thursday, I thought we could have um, my awesome colleague, Margaret Taylor, who's uh, uh, writes about Congress for, for Lawfare and, and at Brookings. And I, I would love uh, that. Yeah, she's super fun and or super in lieu of fun and uh, and knows all kinds of knows all kinds of things about all kinds of things. And, um, and then Friday, I don't know what's going on on Friday. We'll figure that I out. I have something written down, but I don't think that we actually know. Oh, maybe it was Emily Bell. We're going to have Emily Bell on. Ah, uh, yeah. That'd be fun. So, so let's you have talk a sign about- off for us today? Um, my sign off was in lieu of fun and also accurate introductions <laughs> you can still have us that would, have been the, that would be the sign off from yesterday but yeah yeah so but i in, think it's like kind of carried across a lot of a lot of episodes to be yeah honest. that's one of the things about having no producers and having no um uh, uh preparation of any kind is you do get little facts wrong constantly, like the name of your guests, or 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 uh, like, or just like where, like or where they're like primarily based. And it's like it's not really. It's actually it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it actually is hard to get it precisely right because they know and the people that know them know. And so like you're get like everyone else doesn't know, but like if you screw it up, it just feels bad, and you're just like ugh. But it's yeah, okay, but it is actually you know, hard because that's the point. It's like more of a cocktail party and audio diary than it is like a show. And but that's, that's true because the cocktail know, party would be like, uh, here is this person, right? Who like, is, you know and other. then I'd we're say good, three out friends, of but I five things wrong. Name. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then they'd be like, no, you're an idiot. And I'd like be able to just like be like, well, whatever. Now you know each other so you can introduce yourself. So, right. But so that's, you know, what we're doing. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to finish a little bit early today, um, uh, which is fine because there's no rule that says we have to go a full hour. Uh, so we will be back tomorrow uh, with the special uh, on the news edition for news that hasn't happened yet. So we can't talk about it. But until then, just remember, if you can't have fun. You can in still come fun. and hang out with us in lieu of fun. And in lieu of accurate introduction of guests and their backgrounds, you can still come and hang out with us. Bye, Bye Ben. Dave.